0: Our help is in the name of the Lord, who made heaven and earth. Okay, welcome back to the School of Christi. And we changed things around here a little bit, the oratory, we were sort of thinking through how we want to develop the secular oratory or the little oratory and not have more of an offering for adults who come to the oratory. And, uh, and at first we were going to have all the oratorians rotate through the School of Christi. And we're still going to do that on the last Saturday of every month. It's called, going to be called simply the Little Oratory Lecture Series. And so the last Saturday, each priest will pick a topic uh, that he wants to present on, and uh, we'll give that to the group. But uh, with this group, sort of uh, sponsored by the Adoration Committee, we want to have a group here that's that's focused upon the Eucharist, both our celebration of the Mass, but also adoration, that this would always be at the center of our thoughts as Catholic Christians, that we would always enter more and more deeply into the central mystery of our faith, the Paschal mystery, passion, death and resurrection of our Lord and how it is that God allows us to enter into this great mystery and how it transforms our life. And so it's never as though we could exhaust this topic. Uh, And so I'm confident that throughout the years to come, we'll be able to uh, plumb the, the depths here with the writings of the saints and other great spiritual writers. We're currently reading uh, from Romano Guardini's book, Meditations Before Mass. And it's a superb book. And what I like about it is that um, it doesn't get overly theological, but what it does is it presents to us, I think what everybody hoped would happen uh, with the Second Vatican Council. In fact, Father Paul and I were talking about this here at dinner time tonight, that uh, someone at seminary had mentioned when you read, was it with you or one other I'm sorry. It must be Brother Thomas. Uh, if you, when you read Romano Guardini, you want to weep after you read his his writings because it gives you a sense of what the Council really wanted to do. And so, even though Romano Guardini was writing back in the 1940s, so before the Council, 20 years before the Council happened, what he's what he expresses in the books is what we would really hope to do in the sense of a resource mont, a going back to the sources of our faith entering into them, understanding what it is that we do as Catholic Christians and why we do it, what the mysteries are that God has drawn us into, and Guardini does this in a simple way but in a profound way uh, that uh, allows us really to, to, to penetrate the things that we would want to as Catholic Christians and to be able to enter into our celebration of the Mass with a clarity of mind but also with A firm desire within our hearts to uh, embrace what God has made possible for us. And so that's why I chose to read him in particular. And I I didn't want that to go away with the the establishment of the other groups that we're having here for the secular oratory. I wanted to be able to continue to pursue this line of of thought uh, over the coming months. We would still, I think, have about six months to go with according his book, and he takes us through the liturgy of the Word and and everything that we would want to, to be able to consider in regards to the Mass. And each reflection is more beautiful than the previous one. And so I hope that in these months to come, we'll be able to, to really develop a, a deep understanding of the Mass and our participation within it. What we're looking at here tonight is uh, our understanding of the Sabbath and also what Guardini calls divine repose. What does it mean that that God rests? And last time, if you remember, it was quite a few months ago. We spoke about it in light of the Old Testament, what the Sabbath meant uh, in regards to God's creation, God resting at the end of all that he had created, including man, and what it means to believe in a God who uh, is uh, omnipresent, but also uh, acts and, uh, and rest, what, how, does, how do we po- possibly understand that as human beings? And so Guardini took us through that in light of the Old Testament, in particular in light of creation. And what he does with this reflection tonight is help us look at the Sabbath now in light of the person of Christ, and in particular in light of the Paschal Mystery. Jesus' Passion, Death, and Resurrection. Our understanding of the Sabbath now is seen through this lens, what Christ did for us on the cross, and points us forward, not only to our experience of God now in the present, eternity entering into time, our ability to enter into the fullness of life that Christ has made possible for us through the cross, but what that means for us uh, in the future, our full participation in the life of the triune God, our deification, if you will, our our radical participation in the life of God. And so he'll be exploring that for us uh, here this evening. Uh, as always, we like to start our group with uh, a hymn. And so I'd ask you to stand. I think we always sing better when we are standing up. And Kristen's going to to intone it for us, Only Begotten Word of God Eternal. Okay, it's so always the... Print in, uh, uh, the italicized print in red is just uh, my little introduction and uh, to prepare us to go through the text. And as always, uh, I'll stop periodically just to open it up for discussion or any questions. And you'll have to excuse me tonight, I'm just getting over a cold, so I'm a little congested. It is the paschal mystery that becomes the cipher through which we understand the divine repose of the Sabbath. The passion, death, and resurrection of our Lord unfolds the deepest meaning of God's rest. Guardini writes, the divine repose of the Sabbath now mingles with the triumph of the resurrection and to the hum of peace breaks the fanfare of victory. Promise and fulfillment have become one. For the Sabbath looked back in eternity to the beginning. Sunday looks forward in eternity to the end, to what is to come. And so for the Jews, in particular throughout the Old Testament, uh, the reflection on the Sabbath looked back at God's act of love and creation. God's love is self-empty and creative. And so uh, our reflection on his rest is also a call to uh, to rest ourselves in a kind of rest of contemplation to to gaze back and look back at the beauty of what God has created. Most of all, ourselves as human beings made in his image and likeness. And so it's always looking backwards that the the Sabbath in the past was reflected upon. But with the coming of Christ, suddenly he becomes the interpretive key through which we now look at the Sabbath, which is now Sunday, the day of the resurrection. And it points us forward. There is, uh, Guardini will tell us, a kind of eschatological element to our understanding of the Sabbath as Christians. It always points us forward to its fulfillment In the kingdom, we experience it now in a radical way as eternity enters into time, erupts into time through our experience of the Holy Eucharist. This is our privileged way of experiencing God. We certainly experience God in our day to day life, in our prayer life, in adoration, in the chapel. But the sacraments, and in particular the Eucharist, is the privileged way that we come to experience God in this radical way as eternity, as eternal love enters into time, this moment now, as we are celebrating the Holy Eucharist. And it's there that we encounter the mystery of that love and enter into communion with that mystery of love most fully. It gives us a taste for what is to come and what will know of no end for us in the kingdom. And having, I think, just this simple understanding of things should, should radically change the way that we enter into and prepare for the celebration of the Eucharist. Our participation is not simply uh, a recitation of the responses uh, uh, to the Mass, but should really be uh, our meditation and contemplation of the mystery that we are being drawn into. And as we follow Guardini along, he begins with the threshold to, to the church itself, to the procession end, to the mis- entrance up into the altar, uh, to begin the, the celebration of the Mass. All of this should be in our minds as we are reflecting upon what is taking place, that eternity is being made manifest to us in this extraordinary way. And so there should never be a kind of banal way that we are entering into the celebration of the Eucharist. And I think this is what we've seen in the, the past generations, that it's become, uh, quite frankly, kind of worldly in the way that we Approach mass, the way that people enter into the chapel, the the music, even uh, the the often the noise that exists within the churches, uh, and even the architecture of many of the more modern churches, I think fails to prepare us for what is to take place. There's a lack of a sense of of the transcendence uh, uh, in our celebration of the liturgy that really is meant to awaken, our minds and our hearts to what we are participating in. And so this is what Guardini is trying to educate us for that. We might regain this for ourselves. And so I said, as I said at the beginning of the group, it's quite an unusual thing that somebody writing in the 1940s would be capturing exactly what we would want to be doing as Roman Catholic Christians in terms of our understanding of the mass. And uh, so we we couldn't spend enough time, I think, uh, reflecting upon Guardini's writing. He goes, um, the introduction goes on to say, and this divine repose finds its expression in time in the Holy Mass. Eternity enters time. Quote, this entry is the holy hour, the constant recurring now. It is not as though there existed one hour, which man reserves for his God, God himself bearing his salutary destiny enters into the hour which attains self-realization through him and now becomes part of the new creation. Through such an hour time contains eternity and eternity embraces time. And so re- reading this, we can't uh, enter into to mass as, as if we were entering into any other social gathering. There should be this uh, sense that uh, this moment is freighted with destiny and eternity. That this is a moment where God breaks into history. And we are presented with that reality within a particular moment in time when we are celebrating the Mass. And so it has to be clear for us as we are at Mass that something radically is changing, that we are being drawn mystically into the very life of God, but also into the saving mystery through which we are redeemed and recreated as human beings. So it can again, we can't be sort of passive or mechanical in our participation in the Holy Liturgy. Uh, it's only, I think, when we contemplate these realities that we, we can approach Mass in the way that we would want to, in a way that w- would open us up to its transforming grace. It's possible for us to go to Mass every weekend and have it not be something transformative precisely because we do not see these things nor embrace them or open our minds and our, our hearts to what is taking, taking place. We can receive the grace of God in vain, Uh, Paul talks about this very clearly not discerning the body of Christ both in the way that we live our lives but also in the way that we celebrate the Holy Eucharist that we can uh, eat and drink in fact to our own condemnation so if we are not preparing our minds and our hearts to enter into this mystery but also to uh, enter into the communion that is established there through the reception of the Holy Eucharist we are doing violence to the gift of God. And so in every way, this should be the, import, the most important moment of our, our week, the celebration of the Mass. And we should be living our life in light of that truth. So we live from Eucharist to Eucharist. We receive the grace of God and we live out our lives throughout that week, seeking to allow that grace of God to bear the most fruit within us as possible in order then that our entrance into that communion can be ever, uh, ever more ever more deep with the passing of each, each week. And so it, it, again, can't be a, a sort of a mechanical reception of, of something that gives us a feeling of religiosity, but really isn't something that's, that's transformative. For a brief moment, time enfolds eternity. Even in our adoration of the Blessed Sacrament, when the host is exposed to our gaze during Mass, and one might say even when exposed for our worship during adoration, we must not lose sight of this reality, allow it to become something banal. Rather, we must let this reality permeate us and take this seed of eternity back into the world around us. And I think in particular at the oratory, this is something essential for us to understand precisely because we have perpetual Eucharistic adoration. Because what what Guardini is saying is that when the Eucharist is exposed to us, we can take great joy in the fact that we can gaze upon the Eucharistic face of the Lord. But we can become so used to that reality that we lose sight then of the extraordinary moment of eternity breaking into time that takes place during the Mass itself. Our adoration of the Eucharist always has to have this in mind in the sense of inflaming our minds and our hearts for the gift that we receive when the Mass is celebrated that we are drawn into something, again, privileged and extraordinary. And we perpetuate that adoration of God that takes place in the Mass through our Eucharistic adoration. But if, it, if our adoration simply uh, uh, becomes something that we become overly familiar with or we take for granted, it can actually diminish our celebration of the Holy Eucharist, or or our sense of what Guardini is talking about here. So our preparation for your Eucharistic adoration, then must be such that we are making a conscious connection with our celebration of Mass. That we go to adoration in order that our faith, our love, our desire for what God gives us in the Holy Eucharist is heightened. So that when we come to celebrate the Eucharist, Eucharist again, we enter into that not with a kind of raw enthusiasm, but with th- this sense of being, uh, of transcending uh, the, the reality of our, our day-to-day life. We are drawn into something that is greater than ourselves. Yes.
1: Um, uh, it, it occurred to me, do you think one way of doing that is uh, to remember that ultimately it's uh, Christ and his sacred humanity who supremely offers the only true adoration to God um, through his sacrifice. Right. And that the only really true prayer, and I think St. Paul talks about this, you know, is the spirit who prays within us. And so uh, our adoration is not merely, or should not merely be our own human adoration, right. but Christ's spirit drawing us into his own prayer That's right. and adoration to the Father, which, is represented
0: and made real. That's right. Our prayer, our adoration is always meager in comparison, but united with the spirit that dwells within us, that cries out in love beyond words, that there's a perfecting of our prayer that takes place, that we are united with Christ's offering of himself to the the Father. And And, we
1: do that mass in a particular way that is only possible
0: even though that adoration is extended. That's right. And that's what Guardini would warn us against, that, you know, again, we don't lose sight of that, that it should lead us into that experience more fully. And so how we come into the church for adoration should be expressive of what it is that we are doing, you know, that people should not be on their cell phones and not wander into the chapels if they're doing, you know, any other thing from their day-to-day life. I think the way that we enter, the way that we process into the chapel, even for adoration, the way that we kneel down, the double knee genuflection, uh, our composure, the stillness, the silence that we seek to foster within our hearts over time, all, again, is pointing us uh, to the, the attitude of mind that we would want to have in our, our celebration of the Holy Eucharist. Yes.
2: Uh, I'm wondering if you could comment on, on the second paragraph, there's the term self-realization. So the hour attains self-realization through and or through Christ. I right. wonder if you could comment on that in, in light of, I guess, this idea of eternity or divine
0: life. Yeah. That, you know, our deepest identity is found only in, in God, that God has created us in his image and likeness. And has created us for himself. And so as Augustine says, our hearts are restless until they rest in thee, that we only find peace in God. It's not in anything that this world offers us. It's only in our Creator. And so our deepest self-realization is going to come in and through our union and communion with Christ. And His perfect love, His perfect obedience, His perfect faith, and confidence in in the father that's our self realization we become who we are meant to be in the eyes of god that's, that's one of the reasons and we've mentioned this before that we experience a kind of existential anxiety in our our life and even a kind of weight or depression i think for a lot of people that's for for many different reasons, but I think the overarching reason for us has more to do with our spiritual life and our understanding of our self-identity as rooted in the person of Christ. We see who we are in Him and who God has made us to be and also the life that God has made possible for us and that we will participate in, that ultimately we are destined to participate in the very life of God. This is our true identity, deification. And if we understood that, think about how we would be living out our life in the sense of seeking to overcome the passions, hating sin, loving virtue, seeking to love others as Christ has loved us. If we understood ourselves and our identity in light of what God has revealed and becoming present to us in His only begotten Son, then the way that we would live our life would be radically different. How we would spend our time, our energy, how we would look at the sufferings that we endure, everything about ourselves as human beings would take on a clarity and uh, a sense of meaning that nothing in this world could offer us. And hopefully Guardini will unpack this for us if that... Uh, is ins- insufficient. But I think that's what he's trying to express. This is one of his quotes there, so we'll see what he has to say here in a couple minutes. Any other thoughts? Yeah, Father Paul. That,
2: well, that same quote mm-hmm. made me think of, um, a few years ago, I listened to this um, talk by Father Stephen Friedman. Mm-hmm. And he was talking about maybe something like this, like uh, this
1: like, mysterious style, like time the time of his eternity, eternity, embraces time. He said that in the divine liturgy of Saint John Christum, the second coming
2: of Christ is referred to in the past tense, because from the perspective of the, of the eternal liturgy in which we participate at Mass, the second coming is already happened. Already happened. I have right. like noticed in a lot of the Eucharistic prayers of the Roman Liturgy, liturgies, in the future tense, and so it seems like together with the Eastern Western perspectives, you get this mysterious like um, time attorney eternity, eternity, embracing time, right. both together. That there's that from our perspective of history, the second coming hasn't happened yet, and yet that, uh, which we were experiencing. Like there's time is still happening at past and yet also mm-hmm. we're participating in the same liturgy that's happening mm-hmm. eternally in heaven. From which perspective, the second coming has, is in the past. Right. So it's. I, I just <laughs> like I'm, I was really struck when I first heard him say that, and then when I first saw the saw the Roman liturgy, I thought, oh, well, we don't do that. Then I thought, well, actually, like both together, it's this enc- this
0: encompassing this thing that he's talking about. Right. That can't yeah. We do it. We do do it. And that is our understanding. It's just that I think poor catechesis hasn't led us there. You know, that uh, I don't think there's much of a sense of eternity erupting into time anymore. I think there's a sense of history and fulfilling an obligation, and receiving something of significance, but I think, in large part, we've lost the sense of what Gardini or what Father Freeman will be talking about. Uh, I've talked to a lot of you know both Eastern Rite Catholics and Orthodox about adoration, and they don't understand it uh, because of you know this idea of exposing the the deepest mysteries of their faith to you know uh, to the gaze of of people in in such a way that there's something about the the all and the mystery of it the transcendence of it that is to be guarded that that which is most sacred in our life even in our relationships as human beings we don't expose for the world to to see and gaze upon that uh, there's a kind of intimacy there with God that is is protected as well and you know in large part I think Uh, they're right in the sense that we have to be cautious about that, that we don't banalize it. You know, something that is so precious to us and treat uh, the vulnerability of the Lord as he makes himself present to us in adoration, that we would not treat that cheaply. And so our entering into Eucharistic adoration should be with profound reverence. All right. Well, when we move on to. Oh, Betty, you had a comment.
1: Who was Gordini?
0: He's a priest, and uh, as you can tell by the name, of Italian descent, but actually a uh, German theologian, and uh, wrote back in the 1940s, and uh, just an extraordinary writer. And uh, you know, so, writing pre council, but I think, as I said, capturing. Uh, What ultimately the council intended and desired to take place, that we would be able to understand and enter into these mysteries more deeply. And I think that's what makes his writing, even though it was back in the 1940s, so valuable for us today uh, to pick up. Okay, so let's uh, go into his text. He begins by saying, So the heavens and the earth were finished, and all the furniture of them. And of the seventh day God ended his work which he had made, and rested on the seventh day from all his work which he had done. And he blessed the seventh day and sanctified it, because in it he had rested from all the work which God created and made. The seventh day, the Sabbath, the holy day of the new The seventh day the Sabbath the holy day of the New Testament however is Sunday the first day of the week here again something typical of the New Testament has occurred so with the New Testament there's uh, uh, the meaning of the the Sabbath itself is fully revealed to us and it now becomes uh, Sunday the first day of the week Jesus Christ was the executant of the Old Testament, but it's Lord as well. In him, the promise of the coming Messiah, which gleams throughout the Old Testament, is fulfilled. All the former things moved toward him, their Perfector. He gave them a new significance and brought them to a close so conclusive that their representatives regarded him as an enemy of God and killed him an act which but executed the institution of his redeeming love. So what Christ was revealing about himself could not seem other, otherwise but blasphemous or heretical. Uh, the Father and I are one. Uh, unless you eat my body and drink my blood, you have no life within you. Uh, it is all the things that he claimed about himself uh, that would bring him to his demise, but also in and through this would bring about our salvation. It is in and through this that he would be able to manifest the, the love of God perfectly. God's love is canonic, self-emptying, outpouring, and it's on the cross that we would see and the world would see that most, most fully. And so even though they saw him as a blasphemer, as a heretic, and would crucify him for it. It's in and through their very act and in and through the sin itself that our redemption takes place. That Christ is able to embrace it, but embrace it in love, take it upon himself uh, in, in order then to be able to free us from the burden and the weight of that, of that ignominy. With Christ, death and resurrection, the new order began. The evening before his death, while establishing the Eucharist, Jesus spoke with divine simplicity of the new covenant in my blood. The day Easter on which he rose again, crowning his mission, now becomes the new day of completion. Again, God rests from his work of creation, this time the creation from which the new man, the new heaven and earth are supposed to emerge. This day returns every week as Sunday, memorial of the first creation's wedding with the second. It has an eschatological character. It proclaims Christ's new creation, the new world born of his deed, and one day to be revealed in eternity. So it it points us, in in a way, back, back to the first creation and it weds the two together, the, the the new the new Adam redeems the old, and in in a sense uh, does something even more extraordinary, that men and women are raised up now uh, to a participation in the life of God, but to become God through grace, to participate through grace in what could never have been imagined, especially in light of the fall and the turning away from God, the disobedience that existed, the Christ through his obedience, his fidelity, his love for the father, his desire to do his will. Uh, and so through his passion, death and resurrection raises man, man up to an experience of God that could never have been imagined and taking upon himself our humanity. It, our humanity itself is transformed. When He ascends into heaven, the, I've always thought the Feast of the Ascension should be something that we celebrate with far more joy than what we do. It seems to pass without notice, but it's really our, our feast and the most extraordinary one because it, it's, it's speaking of the raising up of our, our humanity into the very life uh, of God Himself. Christ ascends into heaven uh, and in his resurrected body bears witness uh, to what we are going to experience in all of its fullness through the mercy of, of God. And so it should be the most joyous day and one that we prepare for, for well, but it's one that unfortunately, very few people even remember uh, to, to celebrate. But I think Guardini c- uh, captures it, uh, what we have been talking about c- quite well, that there is this eschatological quality to it. Eschatological is just the, or eschatology is the study of the last things. So it points to the last things. And, uh, but as Paul said, that this is a reality that becomes present to us now. The end is now. Salvation is now. The moment of our redemption is now. And that should be in our mind as we are celebrating the the Mass, that we don't let that moment when eternity breaks into time pass us by as if it is like any other moment, that it requires a response from us, a response to say yes to God. In fact, this is what we do when we receive the Holy Eucharist. We say amen, so be it, that, that our life, will be conformed to the life of Christ in a radical way. We are saying, yes, God, I wish to become what it is that I re- receive and vow to do exactly that, that I will become the love that I receive here, the, the self selfless sacrificial love that I receive at the altar. So I will embrace in all of its fullness. And so, you know, we, we can't again sort of in A half-hearted way come up to receive Holy Communion. It's it's funny, as many times as I've preached about about that, that we cannot have a herd mentality when it comes to receiving the Holy Eucharist, that our primary concern should be our relationship with God and how prepared we are not only to enter into this Holy Mystery, but to receive the great gift of it, the, the Radical Communion through the reception of the body and blood of Christ. There's always grace for us to go to mass, even when we do not receive Holy Communion. We're still participating in that Paschal mystery. So we should never feel like somehow we have to go and receive communion in order to receive the grace of God. We are participating in the most extraordinary event at at the altar yet we have to be prepared to to enter into that and receive that. It's an act of consummation. Christ giving himself to his bride, body, blood, soul, and divinity. And so our hearts have to be prepared for that reality. Both, I I think, in a a moral way, in the sense of the purity of heart that we have, uh, but also even in in the sense of where our, our minds are in preparation for that reality, whether or not we've we've prepared ourselves to enter into the mystery in an undistracted fashion, or whether our thoughts are really with communing with the, the things of this world, or our anxieties about our work, or our anxiety about our, our study, or what we're going to be doing the rest of that day, that somehow that we've lost sight fundamentally of, again, this eruption of eternity in, into time. That I think we know, unless our conscience has been silenced, we know whether or not we've prepared ourselves to enter into that re- reality. And this is why we're encouraged by the Church to make an examination of conscience, conscious conscience, multiple times throughout the course of the day, uh, and certainly at night, and certainly before we we are preparing ourselves for the cel- celebration of the Mass. Uh, you know in one sense, I think intuitively people had that sense in the past, or at least they were educated that you would go to confession before receiving communion, that they would want to know the grace of the sacrament of confession before they would receive Holy Communion. And it was really formed into them in this deep way, uh, even if perhaps the, the, the Fuller understanding was was lacking as to, as to why it still existed. but I, I think at this point there was a, a lo- there's a loss of a sense of that that there's more of a sense of embarrassment of not going up and receiving communion than there is a desire to receive communion in the way that God would want us to enter into this reality. And so you know when Philip Neri no, he lived in a time, and you know, we might look at our own time and life and the state of the church as being the worst ever in history. But, you know, Philip lived in a time, Newman said, that, you know, where there was this kind of traitorous kind of uh, expression of the faith and uh, living out of the faith, in particular among the clergy and among the faithful, that... You know that there had been a radical movement away from the piety of the church in, in Rome, and the Philip begins with the sacrament of confession, that people might come to experience the mercy and the love of God through the confession of their sins, in order that they might then be able to prepare themselves for the frequent communion that Philip also desired them to have. But prior to that, communion was uh, uh, an experience that was rare. <laughs> Uh, in, in those days, maybe once once a year uh, perhaps, that people would receive. And whereas in Philip's time, we see this development of frequent communion and some of his penitents even receiving every day. But also what we see parallel to that, and even preceding that, was this uh, uh, drawing them into the other s- sacrament of healing, that of confession and some of them multiple times a week and some of them even daily, depending upon what it is that they might be struggling with, that they might know the healing of the one sacrament in order that they might also know the full fruit of entering into the deepest communion with the Lord in, in the Holy Eucharist. And so it's this sense of, of the Eucharist that we want, might want to regain in order that we also might regain for ourselves Uh, an understanding of how we would want to prepare ourselves for it, that we wouldn't take it for granted, but we would love the Eucharist so much and love this gift so much that we would seek to prepare our minds and hearts as fully as we can. Yes?
1: So I guess I'm just wondering why most churches don't offer confession every day. And I, I just, I don't believe that every priest is so, like, doesn't understand that.
0: Well, I think obviously they don't understand it or it would be offered and I think uh, You know, there's been a loss of the sense uh, I think of everything that Guardini is talking about here surrounding the Eucharist that it can become very easy for a priest to see it as an obligation like anybody else or sort of uh, uh, You know, something that interrupts the flow of their day that they have to do rather than being the center of their life and the most important thing that they would do and prepare themselves for. So, you know, thinking of somebody like uh, Padre Pio would be up in the middle of night praying for hours uh, before celebrating the mass at the crack of dawn, which then would take three hours for him to celebrate because he was so wrapped in the mystery of what was taking place at the altar. And people didn't complain about it because they had a saint who was celebrating the Mass, but he also spent pretty much the whole day hearing confessions for his people. That he was he knew what he was ordained for, that he was ordained for the altar, and he was ordained for the confessional. That was his identity. And there's been a loss of priestly identity that has taken taken place over over time. As I think there as the loss of the sense of the sacrifice of the Mass and what's taking place at the Mass has been lost as well. So if that's not where your identity is rooted as a priest, where's it going to be rooted other than in programming that is often banal or administrative duties? I mean, we can convince ourselves as priests that all these different things are important and need our attention, where they can be actually attended by, attended to by just about anybody else but what the priest is ordained for and what he and he alone can do is often something that is ignored, not prepared for, or seen as something that's, you know, inconvenient and not done. You know, the thought is nobody will come. Well, you know, Philip Neary and Padre Pio and John Vianney, they were willing to wait and sit in the confessional or sit in the church until penitents began to come. And so it wasn't immediately that people began to see the fruit of that. It was only over time, to the point where you know John Vianney, you know, it's all, all day, and I don't know how he does it. We hear a lot of confessions around here, and you come out of there after an hour, <laughs> like a limp, limp, limp rag, because you hear one after another, and you think, how did a how did a man, other than by the grace of God, hear confessions for twelve? 16 hours a day, either in a church that was blazing hot or f- freezing cold. How is that possible? It's because he had a sense of what his identity was and what God had called him to, that he was an altar Christus, and he must live his life as another Christ. He must do what Christ did and what he called his disciples to do, Ooh. You know, who, what, who has ever sins you forgive, they are forgiven, you know, ever sins you bind, they are bound and to, to celebrate the Eucharist. And so, you know, for Philip Neri in the creation of the oratory, there are three pillars that we've talked about. If you remember prayer, so he calls the oratory, the oratory, a place of prayer, a house of prayer, administration of the sacraments and familiar discourse on the word of God. These three things are the primary purpose of an oratorian, and to live the common life in, ch- in charity. And it's not, you know, brain, or what is it, brain surgery kind of thing. You know, it's, I think it's very clear. Uh, it's just in seminary, you never hear uh, about that, or at least not put in the, this way. You know, I didn't read Fulton Sheen's book. What's the title of the one? The priest is not his own until after I was ordained a priest. But in my, in my mind, it still stands as like the most significant modern work that makes it clear, okay, this is the priestly identity. And you all, he says in the book, you always hear them say in seminary about being a good priest, but they never speak about what it is to be victim. Christ was priest and victim. So what does it mean to be a good victim? What does it mean to make yourself radically accessible uh, to serve those in your charge? And you know, we see images of it, icons of it, in people like Philip Neri or John Vianney or Padre Pio, and so that's where we need to keep our focus. Uh, I think with so many priests that I talk, you know, have an opportunity to talk to, often the thing that I'll you know have to say is. Simply focus on your priestly identity. Don't don't think about everything that's going on in the life of the church, everything that you're reading in social media, or even the scandal that has taken place over these past years. Where you are going to find your priest your your peace is focusing upon your identity as Christ has led you to embrace this path. This is where you're you're going to find peace of mind and heart, but also begin to live your life as Christ has called you. And it's interesting, you see a look of, uh, you know, peace come over a person when it's put in those simple terms. Yes, you know, this is who I'm supposed to be. And I think that that would be true for married couples as well. You know, I think we often get caught up in the realities of day-to-day uh, day-to-day life and lose sight of the fundamental gift that God has given us in our particular vocations. And so this is why people escape into work and ignore their marriages, and this is why priests escape into their work or administrative work and, and you know, uh, ignore their fundamental vocation and either end up leaving the priest priesthood or not being a good priest. Uh, because they've lost sight of who they're supposed to be. So I think part of it is formation. And it's not going to come from seminaries. It's, it's going to come from priests having the example of other priests who are living that, that life, who are willing to spend that time in the confessional, who say the Mass with love and devotion, you know, who make themselves radically accessible. You know, that requires a choice you know as a priest you have to say just like it does for uh, say a mother or a father you know if you're going to be present to your children you're going to have to say no to a whole and to your spouse you're going to have to say no to a whole host of things and to be a good priest uh, in order to have the prayer life that you need to have in order to be faithful to your your preparation for mass and in order to make yourself accessible, you're going to have to say no to a lot of things for, in order to say yes to this greater good and experience the fruit of it. And there is an extraordinary fruit of it. I think this is what Philip Neary and others experience, that there is grace that comes to you as a priest when you embrace that reality in its fullness, even when it's hard. And I think that's what escapes a lot of married couples as well when they're carrying that cross. and. The life is a drudgery and work is stinks and, you know, and they're up at night, you know, taking care of the kids. You know, they, they can make the, the choice at that moment to see it through the eyes of faith and see the presence of God in that and the call to love with this same selfless love. Or they can tur- turn away from it into distraction. And, you know, we, in our generation, we've become, we've excelled at that. You know, of losing ourselves in distraction to the point that we're losing our identity as human beings. There's a kind of barbarism. I mean, if you look, if you watch one hour of news, it's kind of barbarism that has taken over our culture. You know, people are shooting one another over arguments or over the hat that they happen to be wearing that particular day. You know, it's unbelievable. At times, and so we've lost our sense of identity as, as human beings because we aren't being at, attentive to who and what we are, and what we've been created to do. Okay. Did that answer your?
1: Yeah, I guess I'm just frustrated because a lot of the confession because I am a stay-at-home mom. A lot of the confession times don't work for
0: yeah. me. Yeah, I think I think uh, people have to. You know, it, they can't wait. I think they have to go to the pastors and say, this is what we want, this is what we need. You know, I don't think it's ill will a lot of times. I think, you know, a lot of times, especially now, I feel for priests because they're given four or five parishes to attend to. It's inhuman what is being asked of them in some ways, you know. And so it's they're almost making it impossible for priests to be attentive to their own flock by expecting them to run to all these different places, but I think it, it's when people ask their priest for something, it should be for what is fundamental to the to the faith. You know that they would they, they would you know make this the priority in the parish. So and to pray, uh, I think to pray for the church and to pray for the priest. I think more than ever now, this is what we we need. And in fact. Uh, Once a month, we're going to be having a a priest, uh, a holy hour here for priests. Uh, What is it? The second or the last Tuesday of each month. Yes.
1: I was just thinking, too, um, the church is kind of shooting itself in the foot right now because they're calling pastors, administrators. They're not even calling them pastors anymore.
0: Well, I think that's, you know, it's an unfortunate thing because I think you lose that sense of identity as shepherd. And, uh, so
1: it's not entirely their right. fault. But right. it isn't,
0: it isn't at all and I think a reason that they're doing that is because the, the landscape is shifting so constantly and so they aren't, they don't know what parishes are going to stay open, what they're, what's going to close, and where people are going to be needed. So they're not, they're not establishing them, them as pastors in order that they can be picked up and moved at a notice. The pastors by canon law have certain rights you know, before they can be pulled out of that position. Whereas if you're simply made an administrator, you can be moved at will. And I don't wanna be negative about that. It might be necessary at, at the moment, but it does have negative effects because it creates a sense of instability in the parishes and for the people they don't know who's going to be there uh, next or if their church is even going to be open. So I think the, the years to come, and in the years to come, it's going to be a very difficult road. Now I think that's why there's such a profound need to pray, pray for priests. Okay, why well, don't we move on so we can get through a little more of his text. Where did I leave off? We asked, okay, we asked whether it is possible to speak of God's resting, since he is, he who is, the Omnipotent One, eternal, unchanging, Revelation replies that he truly makes decisions, creates and rests from creating. This double aspect of the all-pervasive, all-governing God who is yet personally free to come and go and act in a specific instance is proclaimed throughout the scripture. The Bible recounts his selection of a particular person, his sealing a covenant of loyalty with him His consolidation of that covenant with the nation which grew from the chosen man's descendants, his divine guidance and support in their constant struggles against their own inertia and stubbornness, his never-failing loyalty, his rescuing them from repeated, repeated apostasy. So our God is not simply one who creates and then steps away, but a God who acts Who enters into that creation, enters into the life of those he has created in order that he might guide and lead them, even in the fact, in the face of their rejection, their stubbornness, or, as Gordon says, their inertia. And this is the mystery that has been revealed to us in the most profound way in the person of of Christ. The God acts in this extraordinary way, even to the point of humbling himself, making himself a slave, becoming obedient. And then obedient even unto death, it's the you know uh, a, either a stumbling block or a stepping stone. I think for us, a stepping stone for for when we have the gift of faith to see within it the love and the mercy of God, but a stumbling block uh, for you know a more narrow or myopic view of God that for many, it's hard to see God in such a way. And you know, who was Jesus? A humble son of a carpenter, you know, not, a, not a rabbi, and yet teaching with his authority and making claims uh, about himself. I mean, it was all too, and the fact that he was engaging and having meals with known sinners, prostitutes, tax collectors, you know, all of this would have been a, an affront to the, the faith and the vision of God of the very people they were speaking to. This is why he was kicked out of the out of the synagogues, basically excommunicated. This is why he takes to the road and begins to preach in, in parables to, the, as it were, the the hoi polloi, the country people. You know that uh, he changes his method of of teaching in order to be able to engage them, and it's only through this simple and humble faith that they would be able to hear and understand what he was. Revealing in these teachers about the nature of God, the nature of his love, but also about who we are uh, as human beings. Those who are prideful and arrogant could not grasp it. Uh, they have eyes but they cannot cannot see, and ears but cannot hear. Again and again, God experiences the lot a lot of the lot of magnanimity betrayed. The account goes on to tell how. He then revealed himself in all his reality. The Father sends his eternal Son into the world as the long-awaited Messiah. The Holy Spirit governs that entire life, and everyone is aware of its unheard of power. Finally, God's Son, accepting the supreme, with supreme readiness the fate prepared for him among men, allows the storm clouds of centuries-old opposition to the divine to gather and break over his head and slay him. The completion of this act on Calvary, the victory of the resurrection, is expressed in the day of the Lord. The God's lot among men finds another expression in time, namely the Mass itself. And so I think this is where we're getting to sort of the, the... part of our discussion. It is this reality, this revelation and manifestation of God that is made manifest to us in this particular moment in time in the Mass. So everything that we've discussed up to this point, everything that Guardini has written about, comes to its fullest expression. Uh, Not only 2,000 years ago uh, in the Middle East, but every time we gather to celebrate the mass that that fullness of that reality is made present to us. And I'm going to skip this first word unless somebody knows how to pronounce it.
3: Go ahead. Very
0: good. (laughs) He goes on to write the divine fate took place in time. As divine act and fate, however, it issued from the divine will. It took place once as an earthly event with beginning and end. Simultaneously, it is an unchanging reality in eternity. There Christ stands with his passion and death before the Father. Before he died, he willed that the salutary fulfillment be constantly remembered. At the Last Supper, he gave his friends the bread of his body and the wine of his blood, exhorting them to do this in his memory. As often as those authorized to do so obey this command what occurred then occurs again in the present the memorial is no mere recollection it is a return to actual being through the act of the Lord's memorial the eternal reality of God's earthly destiny renewed ever and again steps into time and so you know, even I, though I think we were educated as Catholics to understand the, the nature of the, the sacraments and uh, to understand this sort of inbreaking of eternity, I think we do fall into a kind of non-sacramental view of things and more of a, a Protestant way of thinking about things, that history is this linear reality and... Uh, that these uh, event, this event took place in time, that is redemptive, but what we are doing at the altar is sort of uh, uh, just a replaying of that event, that we could sort of participate in it in a notional way or through our imagination, and that something you know extraordinary takes place there. I think most Catholics s- still have a, a sense of, although not many believe in the real presence of. The Lord in the Eucharist, which is sort of a surprising reality. I think the percentage is frighteningly low. And uh, so, you know, I think we've moved away from what Guardini is talking about here, of not looking at it as as memory in the way that we think about it, but we do this as uh, in in a way that draws us in to that eternity, that eternity's inbreaking. And so every time we celebrate the the moment, the the mass, that takes place, that eternity enters into time and we are there and we are immersed in the fullness of that mystery, the Paschal mystery, the passion, death and resurrection of the Lord. All that took place place, uh, in those moments takes place and we are present to it in that moment. And this is, is also true and our hearing of the word proclaimed. Like we're, the gospel this weekend is about the temptation of Christ. And uh, you know, that this reality is made present to us in that moment as well. That temptation of Christ is something that, that takes place uh, in, in our life as well. And that our response in that moment has to be that of Christ. You know, to stay focused upon the Father, not to put God to the, the test, not to cling to the things of this world, to embrace our identity, that is our poverty before God, in order that he might make use of it, but also that he might might lift us up. That, you know, the, the, the devil is every bit as present to us as he was to Christ. And in uh, one of the groups, Recently we, or I think maybe it was in a homily earlier this week, we talked about the, the fact that, the, you know, when we look at the martyrs, we often hold them up as uh, enduring these extraordinary realities. The, the Feast of Perpetua and Felicity, you know, mauled by beast, and then I believe both beheaded. And, you know, it's, it is an extraordinary uh, uh, act of faith and... Extraordinary courage, but the 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 beasts that we are attacked by are far more fierce than lines in an arena. That the the fierceness with which we are attacked and the relentlessness, relentless nature of that attack uh, and the struggle with our passions, with temptations that come to us. Is, is far greater than, that, than what they experienced. I've mentioned here a number of times a contemporary elder who said, those who seek purity of heart and those who gain it in our day are greater than the martyrs. That their faith is greater than the martyrs. To live the life of purity of heart in our day requires an act of faith, an act of courage that is greater than the faith required of those who had to bear witness to Christ in the beginning. That the response that is required from us has to be absolute because we are constantly surrounded by the assaults of the evil one that would pull us away from, from the purity of heart that God calls us to. And, and I, I agree, with, agree with him. And so when we hear the gospel proclaimed as tomorrow, we have to personalize it. Again, we can't look up, upon it as past history as if that word you know, it was meant for someone else, or that we are just recounting something from the life of Christ. We are recounting something, or we are are, are being presented with something that is taking place, and that we are experienced in that moment of of our celebration of the Mass. And so, our response to that word of God, you know, we have to have our minds and our hearts to be prepared to say that yes to God in the same way that Christ said yes. To to him in the desert otherwise you know we we will walk out of the church as if uh, nothing took place nothing extraordinary other than being you know having that text preached about you know it's our tendency and i think it's a psychological a form of psychological and spiritual resistance to push it out To the margins you know to push push it out into you know past history or to make it you know something that you know that we carry in our mind and imagination rather than something that is experiential and that is experienced now now again is the moment of salvation now is the moment that we have to fight off the demon and resist his attack who will even use and father paul and i were talking about this will we're, we'll even use scripture to battle against us, and in one sense, probably knows it better than than, than we do, do because not knowing the limitations that we we often know. So you know, we have to be prepared for the the onslaught. Where did I leave off? When the eternal God? Okay. Any comments though, or about that, or? Yes.
1: So every time we read the scriptures, then we are entering into something that is kind of like the mass. We're entering into the eternity part of, uh, I, I don't, uh, you know what I'm trying to say? Kind right. of like, the, the,
0: it's, not, the, it's not, it's not simply story. words written on a page. Yeah.
3: That God's
0: anything? eternal word has become incarnate and made manifest to us. And so the word that we hear proclaimed at mass should never be something that we make abstract or notional, but should be radically present to us. And, you know, I think this is where something like the practice of Lectio Divina, you know, meditation upon the scriptures is so important that it is internalized, that it's not something that, you know, just passes in one ear and up up the other, that it is meant to be something that is transformative for us. So, there is a grace that comes through our meditation upon the Word of God. And so, our preparation for the liturgy of the Word should be no less intense than our preparation for the liturgy of the Eucharist in our reception. We hear the Word, we enter into communion with with God through the proclamation of the Word and the preaching of it. And, but then we enter into this radical union, communion through the consummation. We receive that, that word made flesh into ourselves. But, you know, often people will come late from mass thinking, well, if I get there by the Alleluia or after the liturgy of the word, you know, I'm still... Fulfilling my obligation. Well, that might be true. In fact, there's no canon law that says you fulfilled your obligation by if you get there by a particular time. You know, p- those are all, you know, stories. I think that are used to comfort people. But I think you know our sense should be that we would want to be fully present and prepared for for it. You know, how, how is it that we you know could you know we're at the foot of Calvary? You know, how is it that we can see ourselves showing up 20 minutes late for that? You know, that might happen because of unforeseen circumstances every once in a while. If it happens all the time, then there's a kind of resistance that exists within us that we have to look at honestly and ask ourselves, why? What Why is this happening to me? It's a spiritual malady that has to be overcome. yes
3: Jane. yeah i think i think also you know it, sometimes you know, even with it's even it's not just a matter of attention i think mm-hmm. because even with good with good homilies that can even be a it tep- kind of be a temptation to forget that it's not just about the lesson that you take take away from it because right. something the 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 what's happening in the proclamation of the word is is, is is like you said like a, a representation and I was thinking you know a lot of this makes a lot of sense with Easter coming because you know the the, the liturgy for Easter right. it's kind of like all of these things condensed into into the Easter vigil you know because it starts with the with creation right. and then goes and, and even what we was talking about with the you know the chosen people and you know right. it, it, it represents all of these things um, happening so it's it's, it's it so it's it's important to think of it not just as something that i'm learning about like it like if it was like a, a lecture but as like something else is happening with that you know and it also reminded me that um, this part the, the, you know this the way this eternity entering into time mm-hmm. and the, the sunday being the day of the new creation it reminded me of the um, in the extraordinary form mm-hmm. at the end of the mass is the the final gospel, right? Um, and and that's not even read aloud; It's read silently, yeah. but it's like and that's the it's, a, it's the opening passage of, of uh, the John's gospel, gospel. Go, John's gospel. Mm-hmm. and so it's like the, be- the existence is beginning again after the mass you know after the dismissal, right. you know, and it's happening It's not even being done out loud. It's just this right. you know, everyone kneels for the um,
0: the word was made flesh and, right. flesh and that's it. Yeah, Beautiful point. And, uh, you know, if, I think if priests understood this, even the way that they were prepared to preach would be different as well. As you said, not just to hear this lesson. You know, that's not their their purpose. You know, I think it has to be something far deeper. That, you know, Newman said that, you know, that the priest would s- seek to reach into the depths of a person's religiosity. And... uh you know to do that you know the priesthood has to be a man of prayer and uh, of approach the, the word of god prayerfully too you know philip Neary's thing you know more is learned about scriptures on one's knees than from books and so you know it's not going to be necessarily the most polished homily or one that has the greatest joke at the beginning that is going to be the most fruitful that might entertain but is it going to make this reality present to us? That's a whole other question. Okay, why don't we move on with the text. When the eternal God took upon himself our human transitoriness, sacred time, in the real sense of the words, came into being. At first, that was the time that lay between the angel's annunciation and the Lord's departure. Within those years the incarnate son of God lived, worked and suffered among us, then and only then. But the reign of Caesar Augustus, during the reign of Caesar Augustus God really became man, and while Pontius Pilate was procurator of Judea, he really died, not sooner, not later. Between those two events the eternal Logos existed as a man. This earthly sojourn is renewed in the mass. When the priest, empowered by the Lord himself, speaks the I words over the bread and wine, Christ walks alive and real among his congregation until he gives himself as nourishment in the sacred supper. Again, a definite span of time with beginning and end, the Passover of the Lord in the most literal sense of the phrase. This last paragraph, you know, I think if you were to mark something, This last half of this paragraph would be a good place to mark that, you know, that the priests would have this understanding that this is what he's doing. And so would we, that that Christ is truly among us in this moment of time. And uh, again, you know, I think we can, you know, because of our lack of attention, our distractedness, you know, that we can lose sight Of that reality very quickly. We become very aware of those around us, what they're doing or not doing, the noise that they're making, the shuffling, all those kind of things, uh, but not aware of the, the thing that is key for us, which is the presence of the Lord. That again, that there is this manifestation of the incarnation and the life of Christ in its fullness made present to us during the Mass. And so again, that this moment us should be charged with with meaning as we as we enter into it You know, we, we can't let this slip by us without meditating upon it and it's I don't think it's something that we can read just once you know what we're meditating upon here in needs writing is something that we have to meditate upon every time we are at Mass and as we are preparing for Mass until it becomes something that is deeply ingrained within us, that it becomes a part of our 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 identity. This is what we live live for. And it's you know, and as our faith deepens and is perfected and purified, that reality is going to become ever more clear to us when we are at mass. That is what we would desire. You know, when you see photographs of, you know, I think we're fortunate, you know, to have somebody like Padre Pio who lived so you know, recently, that we do have photographs of him saying mass. And, you know, there are these long periods of time where he's lost in the mystery. That's, you know, part of the reason that the mass took three hours long. But when you see the gaze upon in his eyes, you know, that he's abstracted, not, you know, with considerations of other things, but by the, the mystery itself that he's drawn into. And when you see photographs of the congregation there who are participating, you know, their, their gaze at the altar and what is taking place there is transformed as well. Now, when I first came into the faith, it's one of the things I experienced. So the Mass was, you know, what is now called the old oratory, the oratory annex for the overflow of guys We'll be living up on Bigelow Boulevard is where I first came to the oratory. And they used to celebrate mass in the living room on on a little table. But I'd never experienced mass before or understood what was going on. But the thing that was unique was that there was a kind of intensity of of what was going on there, both in the way that the priest was saying the prayers, but also the intensity of the group as a whole on what was going on at that, that altar. There was something about that that focus that I had never experienced in a life of faith. When you grow up uh, Protestant, Presbyterian, you know, often the preaching could be very good, uh, but then the the liturgy would end. It was truncated. There was never this completion of of it with the celebration of the Eucharist. So when you first encounter that. There's, there's something of your worldview begins to change. Uh, you begin to get, catch your first glimpse of the, the sacramental worldview that of this eternity breaking into time, of you know, this sacred moment that, that God has privileged us to to enter enter into. And so seeing those with fresh eyes as a a student, uh, I didn't understand what was going on, but you could see in the way that people were worshiping that this was not an ordinary moment for them. And so, you know, I think we've talked about this before in the group that I think our exposure of people about the, to the faith, we would do better, better in celebrating our liturgies well, and bringing them to an exp- to the liturgy, that they might enc- have this encounter with the Lord, that they might witness this reality, even if they don't understand it. You know, we often think that what we need to do first is talk and convince, argue. Whereas I think if we were to celebrate the liturgy in the way that we, we should, that to bring people to, to Mass and have them encounter that, see that, in those who are worshiping, but also in what's taking place at the altar, we open them up to an experience of God that then can give rise to a deepening of faith that can open their eyes to that reality more and more fully. And so the worst, if you were thinking of undermining the church, if if you're thinking as the, the devil himself, the first thing that you would Things that you would undermine would be the priesthood and also the, the, the Eucharist, the mass. That you would banalize the mass and you, you would distort the priest's vision of his own identity as priest. And once you've undermined that, the, the structure itself begins to crumble because what is central is no longer emphasized. And so, you know, it cannot hold itself upright. Uh, The pillar has been removed. Where are we at this point? To to participate properly in the Mass, it is essential that we be aware of its temporalness, of its beginning, continuation, and end. This brief portion of time enfolds eternity. Customs like the exposing of the Blessed Sacrament during the Mass are inclined to obscure this they are a concession to the congregation's desire to have the Lord present in the mystery of the Eucharist as openly, as intimately, as long as possible. There's something very vital in this desire and in the church's response to it. So even like the eleva- even during the Mass, the elevation of the Eucharist, that it would be visible to those who are participating at Mass, even when the priest had his back, to the people, that the elevation would be such that that those present could gaze upon. That there is a kind. He he refers to it here a kind of uh, concession, and that it's a good and holy you know response to want to uh, uh, make that visible. You know to satisfy that desire, but uh, he says that there can also be something lost in here if we're not, not careful. Upon closer examination, however, we notice that the privilege is not granted without specific limitations. All too easily, the exposition of the Blessed Sacrament can blur the sense of sacred temporalness in the Mass. The constant figure of the host, star-like above the altar, cancels the sense of the Lord's coming, pausing, and departing. It is very important to experience the Passover of the sacred moment emerging from eternity. It catches us up in it into itself, and while at last we are different from what we were are at other times, then it dismisses us and we fall back into the transitoriness of day-to-day existence. But if we have vitally participated in it, we take with us the seed of that holy eternity which comes from the resurrection, and our life in the transitory world is changed. So there's something good and beautiful in this desire to gaze upon Christ as he makes himself present to us in in the Eucharist. But we can lose, he said, this sense of eternity breaking into time. And there's something very important for us to hold on to there. You no, know, this extraordinary moment, that this moment is not like any other of our life. And it is a moment in time that transforms our, is meant to transform the way that we live our life, no matter how ordinary it might seem to be, that we have this radical encounter with God. And so we find ourselves radically changed and can enter into that reality more and more fully as God desires it and as who we have been created to be, sons and daughters of God. And so again, you know, here as we have perpetual adoration, I think this kind of catechesis becomes very important for us. The two are meant to uh, lead to the other, that our adoration of the Holy Eucharist here should enliven everything that we've been considering here in Guardini's Writing so that then when we do experience that moment at Mass, it is intensified for us. That our the vision of faith has become ever more clear for us through gazing upon the Eucharistic face of Christ. Then we begin to see Him ever more clearly in the celebration of the Eucharist when He, when eternity manifests itself in time in that radical way. If that is not happening for us again, there can be a, a kind of the spiritual lack there that we need to address in some fashion, whether moral, spiritual, or in terms of our understanding of things. Any comments or questions on these last few paragraphs? Yes.
1: Was he saying also that in some liturgies that um, our Lord is uh, in the monstrance during
0: the Mass? No, I think he's talking about, you know, this desire of the faithful I think there was even there are some writings where it says, you know, higher, higher, Father, you know, hoist the host higher that it might become visible to us. Yeah. And so the liturgy itself takes on this the eleva- you know the sense of the elevation of the, of the uh, of the presence of Christ in uh, in the in the bread and the wine.
1: Were you taught in seminary? You know. How you know how high? Or, you know what I mean. Is there, <laughs> <laughs> like, is there? Well, oh, a-
0: oh, some hi- <laughs> how, some higher than others. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yes, you know, but uh, I think the, 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 there's a, a lack in the training in the sense that it can be, become overly individualized, and then it becomes a distraction when it becomes a. You know, a peculiarity of the priest and things are being done in this odd, odd kind of way, either the inflection of the voice or the the, 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 the speed with which he's saying the prayers, you know, doing things in an overly affected way. I think even the whole preaching thing, walking up and down the aisle, it drives me nuts, <laughs> you know, because at that point.
3: That's all about
0: it. Oh, uh, yeah, I think so. And it, you know, I even saw a video of, of a priest riding one of those, uh, they call it like hoverboards or something like that. It was wheels, you know, and you just stand on it, going up and down the aisle as he's preaching. And I think at that point, the priest becomes a distraction. And he's, take, he's distracting people from that word that is being proclaimed. We always had this thing when we were trained as servers at Mass, that you, you want to become invisible. You want to know what you're doing and know it so well that you can make these movements to assist the priest at the altar, and it almost goes unnoticed by, by people in the congregation because you don't want the attention to be on you or to distract from what's going on at the altar. So you, do, you don't want guys up there playing with their hair, or you, know, you want them to be attentive to what they're, they're doing. And the same thing with the priest you know i think he should be doing what the the what he's taught to do that you do the, the the you say the black and you do the the red you follow the rubrics of of the mass and you're you're not meant to improvise Well,
1: yes. the elevation stored mass meant for, mostly for the congregation's sake, so we really should be yeah. looking for that.
0: That's what Guardini is talking about here, and that's why we have the ringing even of the bells, you know, to draw attention. Yep. For Father, Father Paul, and then we'll go. go ahead.
2: Uh, I was just going to say, uh, I was thinking this one, when he's talking about this, like, it's a good desire, and yet, see how it takes away from, mm-hmm. it kind of, it seems similar to what it reminds me of um, the, the Transfiguration when Saint Peter like sees the good of what's there and wants to hold that, Right. and yet like that's not the point of Mass. at which we, uh, in which the self, the total. Uh, well, the, I mean, the, we don't get to stay there. Like Calvary is the glorification price, yeah. not Mountebble, and it's not the elevation that's the central focus. But right. it's the wow, Christ. that's perfect.
0: Yeah, I think it cap- that captures exactly what. Guardini is talking about here, you know. Lord, shall we build three <laughs> huts, you know, in order that he could, yeah, they could remain in that glory, you know, in that moment that they could perpetuate it. And he lost sight of where, as you said, where the true glory is to be found. This was an inbreaking of bearing witness to what is on the other side of the cross, and he wanted to house it. This, you know, something that he would have access to and. Perhaps control himself. I think that that can often be true for us, you know, that we want to take hold of something uh, and manipulate it for our own purposes, even spiritually we can do that. And so there is that kind of danger that I think he's talking about here. The old liturgy uh, I don't think allowed that so much, you know, that the mystery was taking place, we were participating in it fully, but you know there was no you know kind of manipulating of it in the sense of making it do what we want it to do or making the liturgy be for us what we think the liturgy should be for us, which is entertaining, engaging or whatever it might might be, rather than a participation in this inbreak of eternity. There is a kind of profound narcissism and arrogance I think that is, uh, surrounds the the way that we often approach. Our understanding of the Mass today—you know—we've become turned in on ourselves, and it's self-focused rather than focused upon what God is doing. Uh, first, and uh, then.
2: So, so, Father, if we if we take all this in, if we make it our own, if we make the Mass the most beautiful thing we can for ourselves, what is our role, our responsibility to help others to do the same? I mean. How do you begin to do that? Because there are so many that, like you said, just they just come out of obligation and, and leave and don't get anything out of it. Right.
0: Well, you know, I think there are parents here that have children. That's the first place you have, you know, uh, the opportunity there from the earliest age to, you know, foster this understanding gradually and draw them into it. Uh, the other is simply living it. You know, that it's it's more how we live our, are how we enter into that mystery as we are participating in it and then how we live our life that speaks far more profoundly than our words. And so it's it's our allowing ourselves to be transformed and uh, entering into this as fully as we can that is the most important thing. We have to keep our eyes focused on ourselves and not be focusing on others. And that's a hard thing to do in our day because there's so much that is going on within the life of the church that is distracting or that is troubling, and I think to keep our focus on, you know, living a life of repentance, of a constant turning towards God, the pursuit of virtue, of celebrating the, the liturgy reverently, you know, we can again be pulled away from that fundamental purpose and get focused on all these other things. You have to trust that, you know, that this bears witness that you're embracing fully is something that bears witness. If it permeates you, then it's going to be something that people see and experience.
2: Joseph, we were not called to approach other people and say anything.
0: Yeah, well, I think we are, and to take those opportune moments, you know, we're not meant to be mute. We want to bear witness to the gospel. but More importantly, we're to live it. I mean, think of somebody like Mother Teresa. There was a kind of radiating of the joy of the kingdom there. And, you know, she had daily holy hours and daily mass and, you know, and it sp- spilled over then into her life and her engagement of others. And it was her presence that spoke to people of Christ and the centrality of, of the Eucharist. And of course, she did say things. She did teach people about it and made it known what she believed. But it wasn't this, you know, anxiety. Kind of thing, it, it flowed naturally and organically out of her living faith, and that's what we want it to become for ourselves. Ahead,
1: sometimes we might not see the fruit of it in our lifetime. Um, the fact that we lived it and didn't didn't tell people what to
0: do. That's true. There is off, you know, often that which is most fruitful and transformative is hidden. You know, we know about the saints that have been canonized, but it's often those who live the faith in this hidden way that have the greatest impact upon families and extended families, and that passes on then through you know, gen- generations. And we, nobody except God will ever know about that, you know, the fruit that their, their faith bore. My, my grandfather's brother, half-brother, was a priest. You know, who, who knows? Might be from that long line <laughs> you know that some, somehow something was communicated and bore fruit. Okay, we're a little bit over time. I'm sorry about that. Uh, sometimes you get caught, I get caught up in the conversation. But there are some sweets and desserts as well as coffee here uh, for afterwards. But won't we close, as always, with uh, our prayer to St. Philip Neary? In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, amen. Amen. Look down from heaven, Holy Father, from the The loftiness of that mountain to the lowliness lowliness of of this valley, valley, from from that harbor of quietness and tranquility to this calamitous sea, and now that the darkness of this world hinders no more those kindly eyes of thine from looking clearly into all things. Look down and visit, O most diligent keeper, this vineyard which thy right hand planted with so much labor, anxiety, and peril. To thee then we fly, from thee we seek for aid, to thee we give our whole selves unreservedly. Thee we adopt as our patron and defender, undertake the cause of our salvation, protect thy clients. To thee we appeal as our leader, roll thine army, fighting against the assaults of the devil. To thee, kindest of pilots, we give up the rudder of our lives, steer this little ship of thine, and place as thou art on high, keep us off all the rocks of evil desires, that with thee for our pilot and guide we may safely come to the port of eternal bliss. Amen. Amen. The Lord be with you. And with May Almighty God bless you, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. And go in peace. Thank you, Thanks be be God. God.